Yeah, nothing like the trumpets to get the snap going. Welcome along to this week's edition of the Snap. American football on off the ball is brought to you in association with the Erlingus College Football Classic Navy against Notre Dame in the Aviva on the 29th of August. Check out collegefootballireland.com for game tickets and more. And you need to register for the pre-sale for those tickets, which is about a month away now. So you've got a little bit of time, but uh, do it today rather than putting it off. And my thanks to Rob Dunn from uh, Navy, who sent us in the, uh, the Navy helmet, which actually is pretty cool. Um, so uh, thanks to that. Rob's a, a lapsed 49ers fan who, a bit like Michael Corleone in the uh, Godfather movies, got sucked back in by the team this year. And ultimately getting sucked back in, turns out, is the type of thing that breaks your heart. So, but anyway, um, you can look forward to hopefully the Navy sticking it to Notre Dame when they come to uh, Dublin in the Aviva this August. It's, uh, it's hurtling towards us now at this stage. So anyway, tickets on sale next month, as I said. Uh, Kian Fahey is with us this week. Kian, how are you doing? Does that man gift you a present and you just outed him as a bandwagoner? No, he's, he's not a bandwagoner. He was originally he's a 49ers fan, fan and he got sucked back in. It's a different thing. This is like, uh, it's like he, he came back to the tribe. It's a, it's a good thing. The, the rallying so power prodigal. of Carl Shanahan. He's a prodigal son. Exactly, exactly. A, a, a parable I never really understood. But anyway, listen, I, we're, we're going to talk about three um, quite high draft picks uh, in this show. But I did want to talk to you about some of the bits and bobs that are going around the news at the moment. And... This is actually a really interesting period of the year, I think, because you get to tell which teams and franchises are well run and which teams and franchises are actually always going to be basket cases. And uh, I know it's not the coolest, sexiest time of the year, but if you, you, know, if you have a particular mind and a particular type of mind getting into the nuances of uh, cap space and how contracts are actually written, you do begin to get a sense that there are some clubs that are very well run and other clubs are just a complete nightmare. Yeah, Dan Levitard used to put it that the transaction was becoming more interesting than the actual action. So I think that was always a good a good description of it. I actually I tend I I kind of prefer the off season. I think the NFL has this. Uh, maybe it's my kind of bias from covering it rather than being a fan. The NFL has this problem where all the on field play is squashed into a couple of months and it goes by too quickly. And then there's really really interesting off field stuff that happens over the off season. But it's dragged out over eight months, and everything's just too far apart. Like you've got the combine coming up, you've got the draft. The draft is fascinating, to be honest. You've got free agency, but they're all so far away from each other. It's very easy to kind of forget about them and move on if you're not paying attention full time. But yeah, the the team building aspect of the NFL is probably maybe it's probably better than any other sport because there are so like there are 53 players on each roster. But there are 90 who enter the season, so you have to whittle that 90 down to 53. And there's so many different ways to improve. But you also have this thing where you have teams that are building for the present, building for right now. You have teams that are building for the future. You've got teams that are rebuilding. You've got teams that are trying to build and sustain, to build right now, to win and to lose. Like the, Or not to lose, sorry, rather, but to, to win right now and sustain what you've already got. Like the, the Chiefs, who are like the recent Super Bowl champions, who just won because of Patrick Mahomes, they're kind of one of the most interesting ones from recent years because they weren't expected to go after a quarterback when they went for Patrick Mahomes. They had Alex Smith, but Andy Reid had this vision of what he wanted to do. He wasn't looking at immediate needs. He wasn't looking at what he needed right now to get better. He was looking at what he wanted his future to be as for a team. So you're going to see some teams this offseason make decisions that none of us understand initially, and then it becomes clear later on. And then you're going to see some teams that are desperately trying to get uh, that one player who they think is going to be the saviour for the rest of their, their future, which generally means they're a badly run team. It's funny you talk about um, the the Patrick Mahomes issue because recently in the last couple of weeks in particular, the 
Lions are being linked again and again and again with Tua as a fairly similar decision because at quarterback, Matthew Stafford is having a good... When he's fit, he's playing well. I think it's fair to say. Um, and you can see how having invested so much time and money and effort into getting Matthew Stafford to this level and now you've got a high draft pick, you might be able to use that draft pick to, to help the general team because you're sorted at, at QB. But actually, the right thing to do if you think you can get a QB who's better than him, is to take that better quarterback and continuously improve and get better at the most important position. Stafford was always lucky in Detroit because he was one of the last quarterbacks who got a mega contract coming out of college. So the rookie wage scale came in and really changed the way the league worked because it used to be that quarterbacks who would go first overall would come in and they would be able to negotiate whatever contract they wanted. So Sam Bradford, I believe, got $80 million on his first contract or something, something insane like that. So that means the Rams were locked into Sam Bradford for years. They could never move on from him until the initial contract run out and the initial money was all paid. And then Matthew Stafford, same situation. And they have to actually keep, speaking of team building, the Lions kind of used to have to overpay Ndamukong Sue, overpay Calvin Johnson, and then overpay a bunch of other guys on their roster. So they were always in this position where they had to manipulate Stafford's contract. And in the NFL, you can't create cap space, but you can move cap space into the next season. So he, they used to push cap space down the road, which meant Stafford, no matter how he played, was always locked into the contract, locked into that deal. And that has kept him around for a very long time, regardless of how he's played. They're still not really easy to move on from him, but they're reaching that point where it's in the latter stages of his career. But to get back to what you specifically asked about, the reason you're hearing all this talk, we have no idea if the Lions want a quarterback or if, they, or if they want to or if they don't. The reason you're hearing this talk is the first two picks are basically locked in on this draft. So Cincinnati's taking Joe Burrow, Washington is going to take Chase Young. It's pretty much guaranteed unless Washington pulls a massive surprise. So the smart thing for the Lions to do, regardless of what they're doing, is publicly talk about how they love Tua and how they want Tua. Because they know the Miami Dolphins want Tua. They know the Miami Dolphins need a quarterback because they tanked last year, or at least they, whatever they claim to do at this stage, they tried to tank and fail based on what I can see. So they need a quarterback. They need a young quarterback. And this is basically a two-quarterback draft. So if you're the uh, Lions and you're in a position where you're going to be able to take Tua and no one else can take a quarterback after you, you know the Dolphins might want to trade up. Or you know someone else might want to trade up with you. So you're trying to build the, the capital that you have and build the interest that you have. It's basically just the, a typical market where you're trying to get the most, most in return for what you have as an, an entity to sell. That said, the Lions are in a nice position here really because if they do just straight up draft Tua like all the, the reports are suggesting they might do, then they can trade Stafford. So now you've got a more interesting kind of trade situation because the NFL tends to love proven quarterbacks and guys with big arms like Matthew Stafford are always very popular. He's got a little bit of athleticism in there. He's considered a great leader. He's a popular personality. So you could see him getting traded for a first-round pick or, or two first-round picks as well. It's not just the, the draft pick. So the Lions are in a position where they can kind of not go wrong either way, maybe. They're going to come away with either a handful of picks to, to improve their roster around Stafford or they're going to come away with a new young quarterback. But I guess you might not trade Stafford in this situation because you have to think of Tua's broken hip, whatever way, whatever the actual specific injury is. So you might keep him to sit him for a year the same way the Chiefs did. So there are lots of different directions the, the Lions can go in, and that's one of 32 teams. They're not necessarily the most interesting team. They're also trying to trade Darius Slay, who, is, uh, been, who has been one of their star players, a cornerback, but didn't have a good year last year and isn't necessarily getting along with uh, head coach Matt Patricia there. So like, there are so many different moving pieces going on with all of these teams. You can kind of 
do a deep dive into any single one, really. Yeah, there's there's been an explosion in recent years in, in um, inter-team trades pre-draft. Has been a. It, it certainly seems as if a decade ago, most teams kind of stayed in their lane. A few smart teams per- persistently traded back to um, acquire increased draft capital, knowing full well that some draft picks hit and others don't, particularly as you get lower down the draft and they get themselves the biggest opportunity to do that. And there was a competitive advantage, you know, the... Um, in particular, the Patriots would have done that type of stuff and it served them very well as, as time went on. But it does seem as if most teams are getting better at this type of stuff. Well, Bill Belichick always considers the draft a lottery and it, it kind of comes back to, I think I talked about this a little bit last week, where the draft draft picks, you're selecting players who aren't fully developed. You're selecting players who you don't really know yet what they are. It's not like free agency where you know Sammy Watkins plays at a certain level so the Chiefs signed him and added him to their offense. You know, uh, whoever else you can sign in free agency from last year who comes to mind. But you, you, when you're dra- picking guys coming out of college, you have no idea what they are. So Bill Belichick always believes the draft is random. It's he can make educated guesses, but the idea is have as many picks as possible rather than having one or two higher picks because trading up means you're giving up opportunities to take these random choices. So Belichick has always filled his roster out from top to bottom with second-round picks, third-round picks, fourth-round picks, fifth-round picks. He hasn't really prioritized getting into the top 10. I I can't think the last time he traded up for a a first-rounder or even had a top 20 pick. It might have been Gerard Mayo, which is, what, 10 years ago? Something insane either way. But, yeah, the draft itself, like, often you can hit on probably 70% of your first-round picks, 60% of your first-round picks, and you can say, these are good players, they're going to be good players, we know this guy's a good player, so we're going to move forward with him. Every so often you get an Andrew Luck or even a Joe Burrow, even though I'm a little bit lower than him, I think you can safely say Joe Burrow is going to be a certain level of quality of quarterback, and that means you can invest in him, and if you want to trade up for him, yeah, that makes sense. But you generally don't want to trade up for like just uh, any other random top player there, like Jeff Okuda, who is the top quarterback. Yeah. Like you're not going to trade up for him because you one position value exists, and two, you're not as certain how good he's going to be. Yeah, and and yet, obviously, the Kansas City Chiefs did have to trade up to get Patrick Mahomes, and it turns out now we you know we found out this year just how in love with Mahomes they'd been for how long, and how there was one guy within the building who stood on the table and was like, ah, we're going to get this guy, and kind of force-fed Andy Reid. Sorry about that image. Uh, with the information and the details. Of course, Andy Reid eat. Well, look, it's uh, unfair. I try not to make those jokes. They're unfair. Um, and uh, like, I I wonder if there's a this is a copycat league. If somebody falls in love and goes, this guy is the new Patrick Mahomes. Everybody else is missing out on him. Is that possible? Well, this is actually something I'm going to talk about when we get to one of our uh, picks that are one of our draft prospects we're going to look at. Be, because um, like I think what happens often is someone wins the Super Bowl or someone, uh, someone yeah, someone wins the Super Bowl each year and basically every other team looks at how they won it and decides that's the game plan, that's the way of moving forward. And one of the things with Mahomes was he came out of college as a guy with a ridiculous arm talent so he could make any throw you wanted but had to be refined technically with his footwork, had to be sat for a year and kind of taught a little bit of nuances of the game. He picked them all up very, very well and he became this superstar player. And one of Andy Reid's big selling points after drafting him was when he brought him into the uh, into the, the whiteboard, into the, the tactical room, whatever way you want to call it, and tested him, his brain tested his knowledge of what coverages he wanted to attack and how he how he would go through this progression and how he, how this offense works, so this defense works. He was apparently incredibly intelligent. So that was one of the things that he sold. But like you can point to recent like recent picks like Josh Allen 
fit that exact profile. Had an incredible arm, was supposedly very smart off the, behind the scenes in, in those whiteboard situations, and he's not developing. He's not Patrick Mahomes. He's nowhere near Patrick Mahomes' level. So if you are the Chiefs and you trade up for Patrick Mahomes and this all works out because you sat him for a year, you have Andy Reid, you have these great players, really it doesn't matter. What happens is Mahomes hit and you got a little bit lucky that Mahomes hit because you got the right individual player. Well, let me ask you this question, right? If you think back to Green Bay and how ultimately they end up getting Aaron Rodgers where they get him and Aaron Rodgers sits for a long, 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 long time. If Aaron Rodgers had gone to the San Francisco 49ers, would he have been as successful without those couple of years sitting? Is that, like, it's a, it's, we can't know the answer, right? But So if somebody else had got Patrick Mahomes and thrown him straight in, the way ultimately Josh Allen is ultimately kind of really properly thrown straight in, is there a possibility that if Josh Allen ends up going and sitting for a year under Andy Reid in that environment with the mentor that it turns out Alex Smith is, could he be a much better quarterback than he is now? I don't think so because I think Josh Allen, as an example, he is an inherently flawed quarterback and is just not capable of being at the level Mahomes is at. But the, the example I would turn to is one that gets brought up a lot, the Chicago Bears. They passed on Patrick Mahomes and they took Mitch Trubisky. And Mitch Trubisky got to go play for John Fox, got to go play in an offense that had no interest in being creative, that had no interest in doing anything except handing the ball off to Jordan Howard and running him up the middle into a wall. And Mitch Trubisky was supposed to sit immediately they said after all he's going to sit for a year and of course he was playing within two games within three games and he was a starter for his rookie season so you take Mahomes and you rush him into John Fox who does not seem to understand anything about offense at all and does not seem to understand anything about being patient and developing with a quarterback you probably would have put Mahomes in that situation he probably wouldn't have turned out the way he's turned out but because the fate and post-draft development exists and it's something that gets overlooked at this time of the year because everyone wants to talk up all these draft like Obviously, the media are selling, like ESPN wants you to be as invested in these prospects as much as you possibly can be. Yeah. So they are not going to come on here and talk any of these guys down. They're going to talk them all up as much as possible and say, these are superstars, these are the next stars coming in. But of course, that's not true because you don't every year have 20 new players come into the league and dominate the league. So you have to understand that we are taking guys at a point in the process where you're not taking uh, finished products. And that's kind of something we're going to have to come back to all the time because it's something that needs to be reminded all the time. So if you take Josh Allen, yeah, you could, like, I would actually say, rather than putting Josh Allen with Andy Reid, if you put him in a situation where Colin Kaepernick was in with Jim Harbaugh, where you could have him run the ball a lot more, where you could have, like, you saw it in the playoff game, but they didn't really build Josh Allen into the offense as a runner. So if you did that for him, it would simplify everything for him. It would take away his responsibility as a passer a little bit. Then you're offsetting the, his weaknesses as a passer. You're not necessarily developing him, but you're setting him up better for success. You're asking him to do less in the areas he struggles and, and emphasizing more the areas he excels. That's a big part of it, too. It's not just developing the individual. It's about what you ask him to do. Because all these quarterbacks do different things and all these players do different things. Yeah, no, it's a fair point. You, brought, you bring up uh, my buddy Colin Kaepernick there. Um, I would love to see Colin Kaepernick in the NFL at the moment. I think he could do amazing. If you put him instead of Taysom Hill in that New Orleans offense, and you, you say that you're going to have the same number of snaps or an increasing number of snaps as things change. Like, I can't, I can't for the life of me think that there isn't one owner ballsy enough to go out and go, this is going to be an important piece for us. He's not going to be our starting quarterback, but we're absolutely going to use him as a runner and as a, an auxiliary quarterback. There's loads of things you could be doing with Kaepernick, right? Uh, I think as a Donald Glover, it was a song called This Is America, and that kind of fits here where... You would think, logically, that's what makes sense, but America is a very complex place when it comes to issues of complete, uh, protests and issues of racism and police brutality and stuff like that. So these owners 
are all very, very rich people. They all lean a certain way. One of the interesting ones is Shad Khan, I believe, had said at one point that he was okay with the with with, with his team signing Colin Kaepernick. He had watched Blake Bortles for a couple of years, so I think that does a lot of things to a man. But he was happy for his team to sign Colin Kaepernick, but the previous GM went out and gave $88 million to Nick Foles instead. So yeah. that tells you where the decision-making goes with these things. Like, Nick Foles is nowhere near... Colin Kaepernick's level as a quarterback and what what has happened over time and this isn't to blame you but it's happened with everyone we've started to talk about Colin Kaepernick and compare him to the backups in the league and compare him to the Taysom Hills in the league we should be talking about him as a top 15 top 16 player he's better than like arguably he's better than Matthew Stafford he's if you put him in the Tampa Bay offense as a starter they're a playoff playoff challenging uh impossible contender because he's so much better than Jameis Winston we have over we have kind of written Colin Kaepernick down over the years because we've had to because the argument of telling him he's a top ten quarterback and him being out of the league is very hard for people to understand. But we have written him down by comparing him to backups, and we should stop doing that. Kaepernick was never a superstar player. He was never a top three, top four quarterback in the league. But he was and had developed. Actually, he's another guy who developed post draft because once Jim Harbaugh left and it, was a, it wasn't Chip Kelly, it was Jim Tomsula was in for a year and then Chip Kelly came in. I think he was injured for most of Tomsula's year, but once Chip Kelly came in, he had to develop more as a, a, pa- a pocket passer, a drop back passer, someone who's going to drop back and go through full progressions. Something he couldn't do when he was playing for Harbaugh, but it didn't really matter because of the way he used him. And because there was all this controversy going around him and because there was all this media coverage that was kind of not really interested in what was actually happening on the field and more interested in their record or more interested in talking about what his quotes were. They were kind of ignoring the fact that he was developing and he was still becoming this all-rounded quarterback. And the the sad irony of it or the sad, uh, just the sad tragic nature of it is he was becoming his best version of himself at the very point the league blackballed him. Yeah. All right. Look, let's talk about the the three different... um, draft prospects. So last week we talked about Joe Burrow, Tua and Chase Young. We're going to start with Isaiah Simmons this time. Who is Isaiah Simmons? Isaiah Simmons is a Clemson player who has been linked to the New York Giants as a fourth overall pick in the draft a lot. And I said player rather than his specific position because it's very, very confusing to figure out where he's going to play. So Derwin James years ago came out of FSU. Derwin James was a, an oversized, very athletic, physical cornerback. And he plays safety for the San Diego or for the Los Angeles Chargers. And Derwin James can play. I think if you lined Derwin James up on the defensive line and you told him to eat a little bit more, he would probably be a very good defensive lineman. He plays linebacker at times. He plays slot cornerback at times. He plays outside cornerback at times. He plays boundary cornerback at times. He plays strong safety. He plays free safety. He can play as parts of two safeties deep. Basically, what I'm saying is Derwin James can do any single thing you ask him to do. Isaiah Simmons is in this mold. He is a freakish athlete. He has this incredible length. He has this incredible strength. He has a speed to, like, if he can make the wrong read on a read option play and just turn around and run the quarterback down and catch him before he reaches the line of scrimmage. He has this agility, this flexibility. He has every single physical attribute you could ask for. But he doesn't really have a, a set position. Like, if you go to his listing on, on Clemson's website, it would say outside linebacker. It's gonna, it might just say linebacker. But... When you watch him play, because college offenses are spread out and because of the way the numbers work, he's on the field basically as a defensive back. He will play over the slot receiver and line up, stand up there. So he's actually covering the corner or covering the receiver like a cornerback. So you have this guy who needs to find his fit. He's an incredible athlete, but if he's Thomas Davis, Thomas Davis really doesn't really fit as much in this league anymore. Thomas Davis was a very athletic outside linebacker, safety slash linebacker who was a, played for the Carolina Panthers for years, but he's just since retired or since kind of phased out of the league. The 
the, the attraction of Simmons is the athleticism, but finding his fit is very important because I don't think he's going to be a full-time linebacker. He's not going to be Eric Kendricks playing in the middle of a Vikings defense every single play because he doesn't really get off blocks and he's not really quick to diagnose plays. I think he could be an incredible safety. If you just let him play a safety the same way Darwin James does, you could have one of the best players in the league. But this is where I come back to position value and the draft value and kind of projecting the draft. As a top five linebacker, if you read that and you see top fourth overall pick linebacker, you assume it's a pass rusher. You assume it's a Miles Garrett, Khalil Mack coming off the edge is going to blow everything up. But that's not what Simmons is. So you have this very interesting thing where the Giants typically will look for defensive linemen, big, thick defensive linemen who they will take and, and try and stop the run and prioritize stopping the run. And you have them being linked with this guy, Isaiah Simmons, who is a complete opposite of that. He's only really uh, a pass defender. He's not really a run defender, but he has incredible value as a pass defender, which is kind of reflective of where the league is going, because you need to be able to stop guys like Patrick Mahomes now rather than focus on the running backs. Well, isn't this the whole debate that happened last season where um, PFF effectively came out and said that you're far more uh, better investing in uh, defenders who defend the backfield rather than investing heavy amounts in... Uh, look, I'm paraphrasing here, so before everybody gets their knickers in or not, uh, than investing in um, the down linemen because trying to stop the run is ultimately pointless in the long run teams aren't going to beat you just by running the ball anymore and if you have your more money invested in corners and safeties then you're building the defense the right way around and then the san francisco 49ers kind of ignored all that and spent all their money on uh, their front four and reached the super bowl with the second or third best defense in the league so there are there is room to zig and zag and there are room for differences of opinions I, I think there's a danger with the analytics community and the fantasy community where like everyone's trying to make a point, everyone's trying to create interesting content, and everyone's trying to make an argument. And the danger is we've begun to compartmentalize positions on the football field and compartmentalize areas of football teams and units. Like defenses work, the, the best defenses are adaptable. They're not the best, you don't invest in cornerbacks because cornerbacks are more valuable than defensive backs. You don't invest in defensive linemen because they're more valuable than cornerbacks. You invest in what makes your defense more well-rounded and adaptable. You have to be able to change as defenses. Offenses will just beat you uh, the way, the, or they will target your weaknesses to beat you. They won't, like some of them, the bad offenses, and like we talked about here earlier, the teams that are poorly run opposed to the teams that are well run. The teams that are poorly run will just do what they do and not even think about what your, what your defense is doing. The teams that are well run will recognize what you do poorly and beat you that way. Look at 12 months ago or 14 months ago, Bill Belichick's offense ran its way to the Super Bowl. They ran through the Chiefs and just beat the Patrick Mahomes by uh, keeping them off the field and running the ball. So you, you can't say this, oh, one position is inherently way more valuable than another, so the priority is that position. You have to consider team building. You have to build your team the best way you can possibly build it, which is also why the idea of just taking the best player available all the time is a very flawed strategy, and it's something that we've kind of, like you would hear BPA if you follow draft coverage, which means best player available, and teams will look back and say, oh, this general manager always just takes the best player available, which is never the case and never true, because what happens is we retroactively apply the best player available to the players who have success, yeah. and we don't consider who was best at the time. And, and a big part of having success is being the right fit in the team. So if you have, like look, the 49ers, this is a great example actually, the 49ers last year, had all these talented defensive linemen, Forrest Buckner, Eric Armstead, uh, whoever, uh, Solomon Thomas. Thomas uh, yeah. yeah, who never really worked out. 
But part of the reason Thomas never worked out was he landed with a team that didn't have any edge rushers, and he wanted to play on the inside as well with guys who were already playing on the inside. Hmm. So you need to, needed to add D Ford, you needed to add uh, Nick Bosa to the edges to make those guys excel. So now you've got an actual properly built defensive line, whereas before you had a mismatch of guys playing in different roles that didn't fit them. Yeah. So you can't just pick, pick a position and say this position matters more than this position. You've got to work to what your team needs. I think the Solomon Thomas example is a great example because it was a stupid pick when they already had uh, that position at strength. It's like, oh, we're adding strength on strength. It's like, no, get a pass rusher. Don't be an idiot. Or get somebody in the backfield who can actually cover because you don't have any pass rush. You're not actually going to get to the, the quarterback. Uh, last point on Isaiah Simmons. The way you're talking about him... Very quickly, the thing about Solomon Thomas is he was a beloved draft prospect. Everyone's like in hindsight saying, oh, yeah, bad player, bad pick. Everyone loved that guy. There was just no room for him in the team. Exactly, yeah. Um, Isaiah Simmons, the way you're talking about him, he sounds a little bit like, uh, and I'm not saying that they're going to end up playing the same position, but he could impact games the way Minka Fitzpatrick impacts games. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Minka came out, uh, Minka's a better player, though. Well, at least coming out of the draft, he was a better player. Because Minka's intelligence from the very start was always at an extremely high level. Nick Saban at Alabama loved Minka Fitzpatrick and would constantly say, this guy is the heartbeat of the team or the smartest guy in the team or whatever he used to say. But you could see it on the field very clearly too. With Simmons, and there's a couple of plays I wrote about this week where I highlighted this, he has this little bit of a hesitation. This little bit of a, do I trust what my eyes are seeing? And that's often the difference between stopping the quarterback one yard short of the first first down line and letting him get one yard past. But what you see when he plays in a deeper position or when he has a, a like when he has a very specific assignment. So if you say to to Simmons, "Hey, this man, this wide receiver, number eleven here on the offense, you just cover him, stop him from getting open." He's brilliant because he doesn't have to think. But when you drop him into a zone underneath and say, "Hey, you've got to figure out where you need to position yourself relative to the cover or relative to the receivers running past you, and you've got to keep the integrity of the overall coverage," there's a little bit of hesitation that comes in. And now we're kind of nitpicking here a little bit because you have to nitpick. Because these very small traits can be a reason that destroy your whole career. Like, he, he could be the next Derwin James. He also could be the next Dion Buchanan. Dion Buchanan never had a position either. was a great athlete. And the Cardinals tried to put him at inside linebacker, at middle linebacker. And he just got bullied. Because he did not know how to uh, work against uh, blockers. He did not know how to be physical enough. He did not know how to read the running game. So he just got destroyed. The only reason he still has a career is Bruce Arians brought him from Arizona to Tampa Bay. So, the like... While any, anyone who's extremely confident predicting any of these players at draft time, you should be very skeptical of, because they don't understand that one thing that, that isn't an issue in college can suddenly become a massive issue in the NFL, and that can topple all of the great things that you do everywhere else. All right, let's talk about uh, C.D. Lamb. He's next. He's the first wide receiver we've spoken about, I think. Oof, yeah. <laughs> I knew this name before I started looking at this draft class. And there's a reason I knew this name. This guy is incredible. This could be like one of your next superstar players in the NFL. And it, it's kind of funny that like we, we you talked previously about trends in the NFL and the way teams will kind of mimic each other and copy each other. And taller receiver, actually one of the things the analytics fantasy community used to say prior to Odell Beckham and Antonio Brown running this league was that you needed receivers who were over 5'11", over 6 foot because they were the guys who could score touchdowns and they were the better receivers. So basically they were talking about guys like AJ Green who are superstars, but they were saying it applied across the board. And it was always something that drove me insane because it was such a short-sighted look at the actual position. CeeDee Lamb is not a large player. He's not Julio Jones. He's not AJ Green. 
He's closer to Odell Beckham type of receiver, but probably not on Odell Beckham's level, but that's not really saying much because no one's on Odell Beckham's level. What I would compare him to is Michael Crabtree, except with a huge level of explosiveness that Michael Crabtree never had. And so I need to explain that because when Michael Crabtree played for the 49ers and he played at Texas Tech, whichever Texas college he played for, he had incredible footwork and incredible awareness of space, incredible ability to manipulate defensive backs. And he would always, always catch the ball in the perfect position to run after the catch, whether there was a defender near him or whether he had wide open space. And that sounds like a small detail, but it's huge because there's no wasted motion in him transitioning from catching the ball to running. So when you're in the NFL, these margins are tiny because everyone on the field is a freak athlete. So the only way you can get an advantage is at the catch point if you move your feet perfectly. So one of the examples of, um, of his plays from last year is he runs a short out route and against an off coverage. So that means the defensive back covering him is 10 yards off the line of scrimmage. His route only goes four yards downfield. So he's wide open as soon as he comes out of his play. But his quarterback is really late to release the ball. So when he throws the ball, Lamb actually has to run back to it, catch it, and now he's at the mercy of the defender. Because the defender is coming forward, he's going to absolutely destroy him, go right through his back, blow him up, probably injure him, and maybe end his day. But Lamb recognizes the situation he's in. So he actually catches the ball high away from his body with his hands. That means his, his torso, his middle section, and his legs can work together. So they're turning towards the outside as he's catching the ball. So in, in a sense, his upper body from his chest up is moving in one direction, and everything below that is moving in the other direction. So the cornerback is coming in at 100 miles an hour trying to kill him because he thinks he's got a perfect opportunity to destroy him. And Lamb very smoothly just bends the corner, goes away from him, makes the cornerback look like he's an idiot, and runs down the field. Then he makes two or three more defenders miss in a spectacular manner. But it's all created by this first initial action. And that's something you see every single big play he has. He is constantly doing this. And once you see a guy do it every single time, you realize it's done purposefully. It's not just he got lucky with the right technique at that time, which does happen sometimes. So I'm really excited about this guy. I, I think I've seen him projected as being going in the 11 to 20 range. I think that might be because guys are thinking about the physical measurements. If you just consider him as a player, you could be talking about the next Antonio Brown running this league. You could be talking about a guy who's putting up 1,600 yards every single season with ease because the talent there is just incredible. Okay, and so, actually, one of the one of the the best fits I think is to Arizona, which would put him back with his college quarterback, Kyler Murray. Okay, right. Uh, I didn't realize. So he played <coughs> on the same team as Kyler Murray because he also played on the same team as Marquise Brown. Is that right? He played at Oklahoma. Right. Um, you, unless I'm completely wrong on no, that. No, no, you're right. The Oklahoma Sooners. Yeah. So um, I have it written down here that uh, himself and Marquise Brown were both over a thousand yards, and it was the uh, first time that Oklahoma ever had that. So. Um, it's always when, when, when you look back and you see who everybody played with and their figures were amazing, you often wonder, like, who is the Jenga piece that keeps it all together? Um, Conor Murray seems pretty good. That's the, the part of this that, like, he wasn't reliant on the two receivers. He helped make the two great receivers, and, and maybe it's a proper partnership. So Mel Kuyper has him going 11th to the Jets. I should have said earlier that um, Isaiah Simmons is being mocked at the moment around 9 to the Jags, who obviously could do with some help on defense to get back to that level where they were reaching the um, AFC Championship game. The final draft profile for the week um, is back to the QBs, and this is number five, Justin Herbert, the Oregon QB, who is being mocked at the moment to go to the Dolphins on the assumption that Joe Burrow goes one and Tua ends up going three to the Lions. So you said earlier this is a two-QB draft, which means the Dolphins would surely be blowing their fifth pick. Yeah, the um, 
I don't think there's anything comparable in this side of the world to the NFL draft process where NFL teams can get very distracted by something shiny. Like Christian Hackenberg, Josh Allen, I talked about, Tom Savage. You have these big framed, handsome guys. If anyone's seen Remember the Titans and they see Sunshine and he's got this big, tall frame, he's taller than everyone else, he's stronger than everyone else, he looks the part and he does everything you want him to do off the field and he's got this great character and everyone leadership motto. And the NFL evaluators kind of forget that you need to be able to play football. And Justin Herbert is this really tall dude with a massive arm who has no accuracy, has, is late on every single throw, doesn't show any pocket presence. I, it, it, it frustrated me watching him. It, it was so irritating because I knew nothing about him. So like, this is generally my approach to these guys is I don't want to know anything before I start watching them because I don't want to be led in any direction. All I knew about Justin Herbert was he's talked about as a top 10 pick. He's the third quarterback in this draft. Surpassed that, and we played for Oregon. Oregon asked him to do very, very little that was difficult, and he still massively struggled. Look, you put up numbers in college because you put up numbers in college, it's college. Like, guy, you don't need to be particularly good to put up numbers in college. But he's missing throws all the time. He's forcing his receivers to make adjustments all the time. He's making mistakes that are unforced errors all the time. And I just, I can't understand why he's being talked about as a top 10 pick. Like, I would be terrified of drafting this guy just because... It, it feels like the, it's a poorly run team looking at a guy who's got a huge arm and getting getting carried away with it. And the argument against what I've just said is, hey, Patrick Mahomes worked out. Yeah, Patrick Mahomes worked out. One, Patrick Mahomes doesn't necessarily fit that profile the teams fall for. And two, Patrick Mahomes is one of 450 prospects from the last 20 years who has worked out. This, this process is inherently flawed when it comes to quarterbacks. And guys will always love arm strength more than they should. But arm strength is only valuable if it comes with a complimentary trade. So he's always late on his throws. So by, by that, I mean a receiver runs a 10-yard out route. By, that, by the time the ball gets to the wide receiver, the wide receiver is over the sideline and the ball has gone over the sideline. So it's not a completion because the quarterback doesn't release the ball at the right time. And it's a very simple thing, but it permeates through every single thing that, that Herbert does, which makes every single play that he has less efficient than it should be. So it's, it's a developmental prospect, I guess, but I would compare this guy to Carnell Jones, to... Uh, like someone suggested Blaine Gabbert to me, which made sense. But I, I think Brett Funley is probably a good comparison because he's another guy who has had a big arm and a little bit of athleticism, but didn't really know how to play the position. Okay, let's let's then put ourselves in the uh, draft room for the Dolphins when we know the first three picks, right? Say say the first three picks go the way they are, and whoever um, the fourth pick is, what what do you do if you're running the Dolphins and your owner's like, we need a QB here, lads? What's the story? We need a QB. Get me a QB. Do you? Do you make a, a pitch at that point for Matthew Stafford with your picks and say we're better off trying to get him than Justin Herbert? Or or do you say there's next year, we're going to continue to build our draft capital. We've got that Minka Fitzpatrick pick that we can either kick back to next year. We can trade down from here if somebody else has fallen in love with Justin Herbert and go again and try and build all of the accoutrements of a good team so that it's ready to go. We've got an offensive line built. We have receivers. We have uh, running backs and tight ends already built. We just need somebody to, to fit into that. What would you do? I see Stephen Ross is taking the Jerry Jones approach of coming into the draft room and telling me what to do as, a, as the GM. And this is why Jason Garrett has done so, it lasted so long in Dallas because he just did what the owner told him to do. But I would personally say... Hey, we're supposed to be tanking here. We are supposed to be losing for a, a greater goal. Like You don't want to be the Cleveland Browns who tanked for a year or tanked for two years and then sold everything out to become a mid-level team. We're supposed to be trying to become a great team. So what I would be saying is we need to strip parts. This is presuming, like, free agency comes before the draft. But if so, 
if I was running the Dolphins from now, I would be looking at the free agent quarterbacks. Ironically, Ryan Tannehill would be a really great option with who they traded away last year, but I wouldn't have traded him away in the first place. So if, I, if I'm in this position, I would be looking at free agent quarterbacks. If I didn't get a free agent quarterback that I like, Ted Bridgewater, perfect option because he's still relatively young. He can grow with the team as the team goes. If I don't have any of them and I only have Ryan Fitzpatrick, I would be turning around to my owner and saying, we need to trade down here or we need to be looking at other prospects at different positions. Like Justin Herbert... The problem with taking a quarterback and missing on a quarterback isn't just that you've missed on that position, it's that you've also generally tied your job security to him. Like, if you really need to take a quarterback at some point, and actually this is something the Browns did do with Deshaun Kaiser, they took a guy late in the second round, I would look at taking someone in the second round. Like, you've got a guy like Jalen Hurts, who I haven't seen a huge amount of. I can't imagine he's much worse than Justin Herbert. And if I can get him in the second or third round or wherever I can get him, that makes a lot more sense to me because then I'm not tying myself to him. Yeah. Because generally, if you take a quarterback in the top 10, if he fails, you fail. Yeah. That's why Jameis Winston has lasted so long in Tampa Bay because the GM there invested in Jameis Winston and had to keep telling the owner every year, oh, no, we're going to make it work. It's not his fault. It's not his fault. It's not his fault. Okay, I did want to talk to you about the Everson Griffin situation. So he is... Um essentially bought himself out of his contract or avoided his contract on the basis of the quality of season that he put in. It was built in that he could walk away from his current contract with the Vikings. Um, Griffin's got a, a, an interesting backstory, has had some uh, personal issues and some difficulties that sometimes the league hasn't always been very good at dealing with, but has come back from those and has um, begun to play at a level that was as good as he's ever played at. So here's a contract that uh, he should be looking at, an absolutely massive contract for himself. I, I think Everson Griffin is one of the most interesting stories in the league for a variety of reasons. But if we go back a couple of years, he was the defensive player of the year. He was the best pass rusher, the best defender in the league the year prior to his... I, it, this is a very difficult thing to talk about because I don't know the specific details. All we know is he had a mental health problem where he went to a stranger's house and was standing outside a stranger's house or something along these lines. I don't want to say too much because I don't actually know the specific details of it. But he was away from the team because he had mental health issues. And it was an interesting test for the NFL and for the NFL media because they did not really know how to frame this and how to analyze this. Some people talk, didn't, like some people talked about him quitting on his team. They clearly didn't understand what was going on. Some people talked about it like it wasn't an injury. Whereas realistically, what it was was an injury. And when he came back, he said, okay, I've gotten the help I need. I'm going to be fine. He came back during that same season, but he wasn't at that level he'd been at previously. And there was an interesting element then. He was expected to take a pay cut in the offseason. To me, it was an insulting thing. You don't need him to take a pay cut because he's still one of your best players. He's still an incredible, uh, incredible talent, one of the better players in the league, in my opinion. He's never been sold that way because he's not really J.J. Watt who gets attention. He's not really uh, outspoken or like he's not really Von Miller, hasn't had that level of exposure. So you come into this offseason where he's coming off what I would have called an injured season. Like, I don't know what the best way to put it is. I think you would call it an injured season. And if he's just injured, you shouldn't really need to take a pay cut because you know how good this guy is. So anyway, he comes back this year and is one of the better players in the league again. He's arguably better than Daniel Hunter, who is their primary pass rusher now, who's taken over, been groomed by Mike Zimmer, developed into an incredible football player. So now you've got Everson Griffin who's been released, or not released, he's voided his contract, so he's now in the free agent market. He is one of the best players in the league, in my opinion. He is a guy who can come in and change your defense. He's a, he's like, he's better than D Ford. He's going to be like better than Nick Bosa. So consider what those guys added to the 49ers this year. You add him to a defense that needs a pass rusher, 
Hello, Bill Belichick in the Patriots. Is he an inside? Is he an inside player or is he an outside player? So, like, he's an edge rusher. So okay. he's got he can move to the inside on third down and play from the inside because he's got that power and he's got built that way. But what he he's similar to Dwight Freeney from years ago, where he's got this vicious uh, spin move. So he sets up offensive tackles, threatens the outside, and then smacks them in the chest or in the face as he spins inside with his elbow and knocks them out of the way and gets straight on top of the quarterback. So you add this guy to this free agent class. Suddenly, there's like there's gonna be like sharks with blood in the water. They're all gonna want to sign this guy because he fits on every single team. He should get a really big contract, but it's gonna be an interesting thing again from NFL guys evaluating someone with mental health problems or with mental health problems in his past, at least whatever way you want to put that. It's an interesting like you can tell by how I'm struggling to even talk. Yeah, about yeah, it. no, it's like um, look, most industries aren't very good at dealing with mental health issues. Um, however, given that he has proven that he's back to the level that he's he's at you would assume that they're going to be able to uh, find the money to pay him. And this, as you said, literally every team, cap space on some of those teams is up around 80 million quid. So you can you hope for his sake that he gets an absolutely massive contract. Keen, anything else before we let you go? Uh, well, I just want to touch on the Vikings side of that. Their team building, they max up their cap. And now losing Griffin, they only have 1 million in cap space left because of their paying Kirk Cousins $31 million this year and because they've maxed out all these contracts, which kind of comes back to what we were talking about previously. They did not have the vision, long-term vision for their team, the roster. Uh, the other thing I should touch on is this schedule proposal by the NFL is insanity. They're trying to add a team to each side of the playoffs, and I can't see it happening at all. It would have meant the 49ers won this year, though, because uh, Patrick Mahomes would have been tired from playing one extra game. So I'm all in favour of it just, just this week. <laughs> Ask me next week when I've finally recovered. I'm oh. like, nah. This doesn't make any sense. But it's coming anyway. We, nothing we can do about it. Okay, great stuff. We'll uh, probably have the CBA to talk about next week if it actually gets done. But in the meantime, thanks a million. Thank you. Keen Faye there with us every week here on The Snap, which is, of course, brought to you in association with the Aer Lingus College Football Classic. Check out collegefootballireland.com for more. And we're turning to the game itself now, but not the game this year, the game next year. With us in studio is uh, Porik O'Kane, who obviously is the organiser and promoter of the uh, actual college game in Dublin, but also Bob Burton, who's the Deputy Athletic Director at the University of Nebraska at their athletic department, uh, and the two lads popped into the studio during the week. Nebraska obviously facing off against the University of Illinois in August 2021. This is um, a massive inter-conference, internal conference, in-conference game. It's not inter-conference because that would mean the two conferences aren't the same. They're, this is a conference game that's actually going to be played in week zero in August 2021. So it's an absolutely huge, proper competitive fixture. And I started by asking Bob what his expectations are ahead of his team's upcoming visit to Dublin. Well, I think that uh, our fans are going to fall in love with Dublin, first of all. Uh, I've been here 24 hours, and I, I can just see the things that are offered and uh, culturally. Uh, and our fans are known in the States as a passionate group of people that support their Huskers. And so I really think that you're going to see a migration of maybe 25, 30,000 people coming over. Some of them won't. You know, the stadium may be sold out, but they'll come just to be. Well, they should have a good time. The <laughs> There's plenty to do of a Saturday, of a warm Saturday evening in August in Dublin. You, you haven't seen the city at its best, I've got to say, with the, uh, the weather we've had in the last 24 hours. So it's even better in summertime. Um, talk to us a little bit about the Cornhuskers, because I think this is an opportunity, too, for Irish sports fans to begin to understand just the size and the scale. We were um, surprised to learn of the scale of your, your rivals in that game. The Illini were here with us last week, and they were saying, oh, I have about 40,000, maybe 50,000 students. I'm like, all oh, right, OK, it's a big college. How big is the, the, the university that you guys are from? We have uh, 30,000 is what we're at about right now. And uh, to talk a little bit about our, like our football stadium seats 90,000 people. And uh, 
we've been sold out uh, for our re regular season games since 1962. Right, every game. Uh, every game. We have 105 suites, uh, and uh, we're constantly doing renovations on certain sections, but, uh, but since 1962, we've been sold out. Okay, look, it's a stupid question, but it's also, uh, why? Why do you sell out every game? Well, back in uh, the 60s, they hired a coach by the name of Bob Devaney, and he won back-to-back. -back. He won national championships in 1970 and 1971. And so he brought an energy to the state that they hadn't had before. And the other thing is, is we started to win and win consistently. And we don't have any co uh, competition. We don't have any professional football in the state of Nebraska. Uh, we don't have any other Division I colleges that offer the sport of football in the state of Nebraska. So when you look at some of the, 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 the other states, they may have multiple schools that offer Division I football, and they may be competing against the professionals. We don't have that. So that's a, a nice combination. And then presumably you've been good since as well. We've been good. We've had uh, the last couple of years, we've, uh, we've been in a little bit of a lull. We're in a rebuilding process. So there's uh, great expectations for this year. And by 2021, I think you're going to see uh, quite, quite, a, quite a product. You can see that the foundations are getting built to, to put us back up there. Um, part the great thing about this is we get to kind of see how the two teams evolve over the next 12 months before they actually get here. Obviously, the, the Navy-Notre Dame game is the one that's coming in 2020. So the 2021 game, there's already, you can see, uh, huge numbers of uh, Americans expected to travel. Yeah, it's incredible. We were over in Nebraska in October of last year to launch the game. And I have to say, I've, and I've been around to a lot of stadiums. I've never seen such culture, such tradition in an empty stadium. You felt, I want to be here on game day and uh, we're planning to go back this October. But these guys, it's going to be a sea of red. I think Munster and Cork people are going to just love this uh, in relation to what the guys are going to bring to town. But what's important from our perspective, as, as we all said, getting out two years in advance. So we did with an October launch over there. The guys are in, this is the first uh, site visit in, 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 in for, for Nebraska. There'll be four or five over the next eight, 18 months as we develop and bring the, this on to where we want to take it from. But uh, we're delighted in this in this team for 21. Uh, the lads like traveling. They like traveling in big numbers. Uh, and they liked, from being out with them last night, they like to have a good time too. So uh, I think we're going to be in good company with our folks from uh, Nebraska. Well, <laughs> tell us a little bit about the, the conference that you guys played. This is a competitive match. and You know, when, when these fixtures start at the very start, everybody's wondering, will it be a competitive game and they are competitive games and suddenly this kind of becomes something that is accepted in college football in America that there is a game in Ireland and that it is okay to happen and that it will be a proper competitive game and it's not going to have any impact on the rest of your season. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's tough to make a decision to say, hey, we're going to take our game and move it over to, to Dublin. Uh, but once you do that, then you have, to, you have to dive down and there's a lot of logistics that just saying we're going to go play is is we did a site visit to the stadium today and, and you know we have a football team that will be traveling 110 student athletes and so that poses problems not only on your training room but on your locker room and so you're dealing with a lot of those logistics and then you're really dealing with trying to you know it's a little bit like a bowl game uh, postseason bowl game is that you come over here we'll have a practice on a Tuesday and then Tuesday afternoon we'll get on that plane so that we're landing here on Wednesday. And then we'll do a shakedown or a shakeout probably on Wednesday just to get them a little bit, you know, up and moving around. And then we'll have a practice Thursday, Friday. And then we'll uh, shut them down and get ready for the game that Saturday. 
so a lot of those things that you got, you know, the buses and the food, I mean, the food's different here than it is back in Lincoln, Nebraska. So we've got to develop menus that, you know, when you're feeding six foot nine, 338 pound, you know, Giants. takes quite a few chickens to, you know. We've got chickens, don't worry. And, you, and, I, had, <laughs> and I had great eggs this morning, I'll tell you. I, that's one thing you don't, you don't lack. You have great food here. We do, we do. It's great. So... Uh, but it's, uh, you know, once the decision was made to have the game, it's been uh, everybody's just moving in the same direction and uh, excited to, to, to get to 2021. But at the same time, I get to come over here a few more times. To, That's all right. To, it's a win-win. It where is. do the teams practice, Park? I haven't asked you this before. Where, where do they actually practice? Where is, where, what facilities can they use that are... So in the case of Nebraska, they're going to stay in Powers Court and they'll actually train in the back page of the stadium. Right. So they'll move their equipment straight into the stadium um, from straight away. And in relation to Illinois, in this particular fixture, they'll go to Carton House and they'll stay there and they'll, tra they'll train there as well. Okay, so there's plenty of, of training facilities. And that's the type of thing that a couple of years into this, you start to get good at. So this is a Big Ten game, is that right? It is a Big Ten game. Can so. you just explain to everybody what the Big Ten is? Well, it's a conference of, uh, it's primarily made up of Midwest, now that then we added uh, Maryland and we added Rutgers, so we go all the way to the East Coast. So it's a long established conference. Nebraska at one time was a member of the Big 8 conference, then it became, you know, the Big Big 12 conference and we, we left to join the Big 10 uh, approximately six years ago, seven years ago. And uh, so very competitive. Always has a team competing for the national championship, but you know. And this is an internal conference game, so this is uh, it's a this, big, big, big game. There's, it's a big game. There's no way to describe it other than it's a, it's a, it's a big game. Unusual to be a season opener, um, that that the teams would take on each other that early in the in the season, but thankfully. So, the, so the governing body that oversees college football has allowed teams to do this once every four years. So you go through and you submit a waiver, a waiver application. And basically, they call this a week zero. It's it's a week before the regular season starts, so that pushes our training camp back a week. And then throughout the course of the year, we have to give up some practice days so that we don't have an advantage of those teams that started a week later. Okay, okay. So there's a, a give and a take, and you, yes. you get the team bonding from the travel experience, but then you probably give back a few training sessions. So it all equals out. We're obviously obsessed with the longevity of this, Bob, and, and trying to turn this into something that happens every year. You've seen the ambition of Park and the guys have put together this package and um, they've signed up sponsors for five years. We have ESPN Game Day coming over next this year for the first one. What's your take? Is it something that you feel that is going to be beneficial to the conference and to college football generally? Absolutely. Uh, we had a dinner last night and uh, uh, we were talking about how to move this forward. And, and there's a lot of things that you have to balance, but one of the things that you have to balance is that you're asking an institution to give up one of their home games. So Nebraska just would not be able to give up a home game when we have 90,000 people on a regular basis. But Illinois, who's building their program, at this point in time, the timing was perfect to say, we can give up that home game, knowing there's going to be some financial ramifications at home, but they make up for it by coming to this game and then finding a partner like Nebraska and knowing that we're known to travel with a lot of people. So you want on the other end either you want to have a team that you, you take Notre Dame Navy. You know, primarily it'll be the fans from Notre Dame that are going to fill that stadium and Nebraska will be the same way. We're going to have a large contingent of those fans and Illinois is going to be well re represented. 
but that's the thing you got to balance is when you're looking to select the team to come over. And is it partly to do with the fact that you're rewarding your fans for being fans for life and it's like, oh, look, we have this trip away for you. Is that, is that part of the attraction? Oh, absolutely. It's, it, you know, there are a lot of people in the state of Nebraska that probably on a regular basis say, you know what, I'd love to travel over to Ireland. And now there's a football game. They're saying, an excuse. we've got plenty of time. Let's, let's make this our family trip. And it's, it's a discussion that takes place regularly now as people are talking about, I'm planning to go to that game. Yeah, It's also the right-minded coach, and then Coach Frost, who is a, a young coach, a former Nebraska player, etc. He sees it for the well-being of, of, of the students as well, to get onto an international trip, to see something different, etc. When, when we launched it in Nebraska, he spoke really genuinely and openly how this was important to the student-athletes as it was to the alumni and the people uh, supporting and they want to make a, um, a big deal out of it for, for, for the kids who are travelling to see a bit of Dublin, but also they're here to play a serious game on foreign soil. So it's, it's, it's great to see the coaches getting really involved and buying into what we're trying to do as well. Um, and the dealing with the travel and all that kind of stuff, you've got plenty of time to work that out. There's been, you know, it's not that difficult anymore to, to travel, is it? No, no. And, and with our uh, arrangement with Anthony's travel and Aer Lingus, is that they'll, the team will, will fly right out of Lincoln direct to Dublin where, like, when I traveled here yesterday, I had to go Lincoln to Chicago, get on Aer Lingus, and then fly Chicago to Dublin. So it'll be a, it'll be a, a direct flight from Lincoln with the official travel party and the team straight in. And you guys would be favorites to win this game? Is that, is Let's that, hope so. Yeah, you're uh, going <laughs> to... Let's go with that I couldn't now. possibly comment. <laughs> Park, anything else? Anybody should know? Um, tickets, the pre-sale for the Navy Notre Dame game are on sale pretty, pretty soon? Yeah, 20th of March, and then for those folks who've signed up um, for pre-sale, they'll go on sale, I think, 48 hours before that. Uh, the caution is uh, Notre Dame Navy are travelling in big numbers. It looks like we're ahead of our 35,000 record. It looks like it's going to be somewhere between 36 and 38,000 Americans travelling, which is unbelievable in relation to a fixture. It puts pressure on these guys to beat that record, uh, and I think that the Huskers are up for it. But, uh, yeah, it'll, it'll be under pressure for local tickets here on that, but that's when, thank God, we've ESPN game day and the high schools and all the different activities that'll happen around the city for the domestic and the, and the local audience but a uh, really exciting summer exciting two summers exciting two Augusts is on the way and when are you going to tell us what's coming in year three no pressure here oh, no pressure at all but uh, the idea is to stay two years ahead and we hope to, to, to keep with, with that and that's uh, as Bob mentioned they're getting out just around the two years so people uh, in Nebraska and Illinois but the Thanksgiving past and Christmas past are talking about will we do this Europe thing will we do this Ireland thing and now they've got a great excuse to do it because their teams are coming to uh, Dublin and Ireland and I think giving people that level of notice uh, is a hugely important part of the business plan Bob enjoy your, your stay and the rest of the trips that you have uh, imminent to, uh, to Ireland you're very welcome uh, thanks very much for joined us here today as well. Paul, good stuff. Thanks a million.